0: Well, this is the time in in the service when we come and sit under God's Word, the inspired Word of God. Scripture says it's been breathed out by God. It's God's revelation for us, perfectly adapted for us as fallen creatures. So as we come to it, let's just pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, Lord, we desire to learn from your Word. We desire to have you speak to us through your Word. So this morning, Lord, may you open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray that you would sanctify us in the truth and we confess that your word is truth. So Lord, please teach us, please correct us, please reveal yourself to us in your word. And we pray this together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's no secret in this life that we will face inevitably many hardships. The apostles themselves preached this. They said this, through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. That's Acts 14.22. Similarly, Jesus warned his disciples in advance. He said, in the world you will have tribulation. And so the scriptures declare over and over again that God is sovereign, that he's in control of all things. Proverbs 16.4 says that he has made everything for its own purpose. And so God orchestrates all things to accomplish his predetermined ends. And he causes all things to work together to accomplish his predetermined plan. And God has very clearly revealed that God brings difficulty into our lives. God orchestrates sorrow. He brings sickness into our lives. And although we don't fully understand it, and there's much that we can't see, we know that he is sovereignly working through all things. We know that through fiery trials, he is testing us. He is purifying us. We know James 1. James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that these trials bring about the testing of your faith, which leads to endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, complete, mature, lacking in nothing. And it really doesn't take long for a student of Scripture to encounter these truths in God's Word. We know these things. We know that God is sovereign over all of life's events. We know that God is using all things for the sake of His glory and for the sake of making us more like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, when trials come in life, and as we can all attest, they certainly do come Trials and hardships have a way of shaking us in this life. They they cause us to lose our bearings on what we already know to be true. The pain of suffering can be disorienting in this life. uh, The clouds of despair can just set in around us. And sort of depression sort of rolls in like a darkness or like a fog. And when we go through some God ordained, God prescribed suffering, there's a tendency for the walls to begin to close in on our Christian lives. The trials in life can be so grueling and so difficult. There can be this perpetual sense of defeat and brokenness and agony, just perpetual despair. And we wonder, oh God, how long will it be this way? When will the clouds lift? And yet, we still can't seem to be outside of ourselves. We're wrestling and crying out to God, and our our Christian world just seems to narrow into our own individual life. And our own set of circumstances become the prism by which we see and filter everything in life. And our own trials become self-consuming. And when we are hurting, our tendency is to isolate to want to be all alone to retreat from the brothers and sisters in the church that God has given to be our comfort and our encouragement in those seasons and we also lose thought of serving others or ministering to others as God has called us to and then we sort of end up with just the the storm clouds of self-pity settling into our lives and there we sit in our own misery and in our flesh Morally neutral trials have a way of devolving into episodes of self-pity. And in our fallenness, there seems to just be this natural gravitational pull upon the trials that we face to bring us into a state of self-pity. In 2007, in an article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, William Farley and Richard Smith wrote this about self-pity. They said this, quote, When persistently indulged, self-pity destroys the soul with lethal toxins that, like arsenic, go undetected for years. Such is the deadly sin of self-pity. Self-pity seems so innocuous, so legitimate. It seems like a normal reaction to disappointment or trouble. But self-pity can destroy you more quickly than anything else And it is to be resisted with every fiber of your being. And yet you will be constantly tempted. They go on. We are bombarded with opportunities to feel sorry for ourselves. Every day we are misunderstood. We're overworked. We're underappreciated and even abused. And regularly something unfair will happen to us. And we may even begin to suspect a conspiracy against us as if someone's out to get me. And that somebody who is out to get me is myself when I'm consumed with self-pity," end quote. I think that's right. You say, what is this thing exactly that we call self-pity? What is this? Well, to start out, as we just read, it is a sin. And I'd say it's a particularly insidious sin at that. And like all other sins, it must be repented of. It must be confessed and repented of. Self-pity, we could define it As being the propensity to feel sorry for yourself because you believe you're not getting what you deserve feeling sorry for yourself because you believe you're not getting what you deserve and so the person consumed with self-pity assumes that they deserve good from God and they deserve good from everyone else and they're not getting it and they assume that they're entitled to goodness and not to adversity and at the root Of this assumption is pride. Self-pity is rooted in pride. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper made this helpful comparison of boasting and self-pity. He said this, boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've suffered so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. So, Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be so needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego it does not come from a sense of unworthiness but a sense of unrecognized worthiness and in this sense it is the response of unapplauded pride self-pity is the response of unapplauded pride maybe what i'd highlight in piper's words here is this assessment self-pity is the response of pride to suffering It's a prideful response to suffering in this life. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've suffered so much. You see, God's intention is for our suffering, for our trials to be harnessed for our good for our sanctification but self-pity prevents us from reaping any blessing from our trials self-pity gets in the way of doing what God would have suffering to do in our trials so self-pity prevents us from God from accessing God's plan for navigating trials self-pity becomes the self-induced embargo on what is most essential for our spiritual health in times of suffering Trials and adversity in this life, again, they're inevitable. We should expect them, but we, most, we must also apply God's word to our suffering. And with the right perspective, we can move from suffering to a place of worship. And not only do the scriptures teach us prescriptively of, of how to process our trials, they also descriptively give us examples of saints who suffered well. Saints who, who manage to work through their sorrow while avoiding getting stuck and wallowing in self-pity. And this morning, we see an example of this in Psalm 13. Psalm 13. And please open up your Bible with me to this book, this ancient ancient song, Psalm 13. It's Sometimes this psalm has been classified as a, as a lament psalm, but that's not all it is. It's also a song or a psalm of hope, hope for those who are suffering. And since we all live in a sin-cursed world, we will all face sufferings in this life. And I hope that Psalm 13 can be a, become a dog-eared page in your Bible or just a dog-eared psalm in your life that you think of often as you navigate trials or you help others navigate trials. You see, through the trials of David here, as David sort of pulls back the curtains on his own heart, we find that Psalm 13 provides us a path through suffering, a way to deal with suffering that does not get us stuck in sinful self-pity. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 13 this morning. Look at it in your own Bible. It says this, "'How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever?' How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What we find in this psalm is a sort of a three-step progression. There are three sections or what are sometimes called three strophes in this ancient Hebrew song. We know that David wrote this this psalm to be sung in in a corporate setting. The inspired subtitle on this psalm reads for the choir director a psalm of david but there's no specific incident in david's life that we can directly tie this psalm to but but we know it was from a time in david's life when his enemies were sort of closing in on him and there was a real threat of violence against him and in this season in the midst of deep affliction to make matters worse David was feeling a sense of uh, sort of um, abandonment, being left alone by God. We might call it even depression or despair in David's heart. But it's interesting to note that there's no indication in this psalm that David was in this predicament because of his own sin. We know that David, of course, was a sinner and a notorious one at that, but there's no indication here that David's sin is behind this suffering it wasn't his sin that caused it we know that sometimes in life we make sinful bad decisions and those bad decisions have consequences and we often suffer for those sins and for those decisions but other but other times in our life some suffering just comes upon us simply out of the blue because of nothing that we've done just because god has willed it in our life we're suffering And that seems to be the case here in Psalm 13. David is in the midst of suffering that leads him to depression, to spiritual despair. And yet, David does not permanently wallow in this despair. He he works through it. And throughout the course of the psalm, we see a change in David's own heart. So what we have in Psalm 13 is really an an inspired example of a saint processing affliction thinking about how can I work through this by applying God's word to it here's an inspired example and I don't want to to suggest that we can be overly formulaic in our approach to suffering as if we could just do what David here formulaically and, and get a certain outcome I don't want to suggest that but I am convinced that we can learn from David's progression in this psalm and we can see as as David sort of avoided the pitfall of self-pity, I think we can do the same. We can take our observations from this psalm and apply them to our own lives whenever we go through seasons of difficulty. So let's set out studying this inspired ancient song and this thinking about this pathway through suffering by looking at verses 1 and 2 again. Look at them. We'll read them again. How long, O Lord... Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? I'm calling this initial section just questions of lament. That's what David's asking the Lord. He's questioning the Lord. And sort of with raw emotions, David calls out to the Lord in the midst of his spiritual depression. And four times he repeats, repeats his question. How long, is his phrase? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? This is the emotional opening line of this ancient song. In our, in our English Bibles, we find two question marks in that opening line, suggesting that there's two independent questions here, as if David is asking, How long will it be, Lord? And then again, Will it be forever? But in the Hebrew, the evidence points to a single question. It's, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will this go on forever? So on the one hand, David's question carries an expectation of deliverance. Until when? When will this end? But on the other hand, in the midst of his suffering, there's a fear that this will go on indefinitely or forever. And what we find here, I think it seems to be a natural expression of faith and feelings within David's own heart. By faith, David trusts that this season will eventually come to an end. But in his feelings, in his flesh, he fears that it will go on forever. And thus this dichotomy of soul, pictured in David's own heart, is emotional turmoil. And in his his confliction here, he cries out, How long will you hide your face from me? David asked the Lord, how long will you pay no attention to me? David was in a season of feeling deserted by God, abandoned, and it feels like here in the subjectivity of his own mind, David comes to believe that God's no longer with him or has somehow left him. And yet we know that God was still with David. It's not as if God will choose to abandon his children or isolate himself from his people God does not abandon his people I mean David himself knew this he, he wrote about this in Psalm 139 we recall these lines where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence he says if I ascend to heaven you are there if I make my bed in Sheol behold you are there also if I take the wings of the dawn if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea even there your hand will lead me your right hand will lay hold of me. So even if David wanted, he could not escape from God's presence in this life. And on some level, we have to think David knows this. In Psalm 16:8, just a few psalms from ours, when David was rejoicing in the goodness of God, he said, I've set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So God's presence, David knew it was constantly with him. The psalmist in Psalm 73, verse 23, rejoiced knowing the constant security that he found in the Lord. He says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you, and you have taken a hold of my right hand. So I think David knew these things, and yet in the moment of trial, in the midst of his suffering, what David knew to be true was dwarfed by the reality of his suffering. The experience of hardship eclipsed his sight of God. And it's as if he's just focused only on his own plight. He's lost sight of God here. So what we find is more questions of lament coming. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day, or all the day? The question that begins verse 2 is a difficult one to one to understand. It says, how long shall I take counsel in my soul? I think that NIV is helpful here. It says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? That's a helpful rendering of this. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? It's as if David were trapped in his own head, depending solely on his own resources, and he's counseling himself with his own thoughts. It's as if he's not bringing in any divine counsel. He's not turning to God's word for help in this time. He's not practicing what he preached in Psalm 119, where he sang to God in verse 24, Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And yet, here it's his own thoughts dwelling up inside of him, speaking to him. Here in his plight, in his depression, in his suffering, in his affliction, he's become spiritually disoriented and he's taking counsel in his own soul and finding no help. And this, of course, is a dangerous place to be. And David continues, how long will I have sorrow in my heart all the day? He's overcome with grief and internal agony, sorrow all the day we don't know the circumstance, but David here is a, a deeply afflicted. And I bet you've been in seasons of life like this, seasons where just the bottom of life seems to fall out, it's the loss of relationships, the death of loved ones. It's sort of maybe the dead end of what you thought was a promising career path. Perhaps it's a, a rebelling child or a broken marriage or deep feelings of loneliness. Or maybe it's just the forced realization of your own personal inadequacies and weaknesses and flaws. And through any number of means, a person, and even a Christian, can find himself exactly where David was here, saying sorrow all the day, just day after day, sorrow. And David's final question, how long will my enemies be exalted over me? And there seems, we don't know much about this, seems to be intentional ambiguity here, We don't know who his enemy was, but we just know that they're exalting themselves over David's weakness. It's as if David is being persecuted and his foe is arrogantly exalting himself, dignifying himself over David. And so to summarize here in this first section, David's trials in his own mind, they're stacking up, they're compounding. And we find David taking his questions to God. He's questioning God. He's asking God these things. And these are honest expressions of his heart. We would say, thankfully, he's still speaking with God. He's still calling out to God. But we would also say his spirit is not quite right. In the Hebrew, this section begins and closes with the two same words. It's how long, these question words, how long? How long will you forget me forever? And his words in verses one and two verses one and two come across as a, a bit of a complaint, or maybe a, a lament, we might say. But I don't think there's anything to fault David with here. This is just the honest expressions of his heart. He's processing his grief. He's working through this difficulty. And there's a a rawness to his questions. But David doesn't stop there. David's lament gives way to prayer in the following verses. Verses 3 and 4 at the next section. Look at it with me. Psalm 13 verse 3 Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. and My adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. What we find in the the middle section of this psalm, I'm calling it desperate prayers for deliverance. Desperate prayers for deliverance. Four times David has asked how long and now he's demanding an answer. He says, consider and answer me. Oh, Yahweh, my God. Literally saying, look at me. You've you've hidden your face from me. Please now look in my direction. And David's saying, God, don't forget me here. Please remember me. I'm here. Turn your face towards me. You are my God. I need you. And then then he adds, enlighten my eyes. Give light to my eyes. This perhaps is a reference to the extreme weakness or even physical fatigue. He's praying for physical strength and restoration this language is similar to the language that we find of Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14 where as a result of a fast he was weakened in strength and yet was energized after consuming wild honey in the forest in a forest and in that sense his eyes were enlightened he was strengthened he was energized and it seems that David's praying for this revitalization And again, this is just a desperate prayer. David lists three consequences here that he thinks is going to happen if God doesn't intervene. Three things. He says, God, if if you don't show up, I will sleep the sleep of death. I I will depart from this life. I will die in this state if you don't show up here, God. If you don't intervene, also my enemies, they're going to celebrate. My enemies will be emboldened. They'll victoriously pray about saying, I have defeated him. We've overcome him. And he says, and if God, if you don't intervene, all of my adversaries will rejoice at my demise. he says, when my life is shaken, when I face death, then I will rejoice. Then they will celebrate. When When I'm taken out, they will celebrate when I face death. And David was fully expecting death and then the consequent rejoicing from his adversaries if God failed to move here. And so we'd say in this section, while David's heart has here improved, he's no longer just merely complaining before God. He's now petitioning God. He's now asking God to intervene, but his outlook is still not fully quite right. I mean, David is pretentiously speaking as if he knows the future. God, if you don't answer my prayers, if you don't do the things that I need you to do right here and right now, then this will happen and that will happen to me. And I'm sure God laughs when we offer up these type of prayers to him oh oh, really is that what's going to happen to you if i don't answer the prayers in the way that you want right now is that is that what's going to happen you know the future now do you david but here nonetheless i think david is progressing His complaining lament has given way to these desperate prayers but thankfully this is not where the psalm ends the psalm crescendos, really, in verses 5 and 6. And I'm calling this section declarations of trust. Declarations of trust. Look at verse 5 with me. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And here, David turns the corner and the transition is marked by these opening two words. Look at them. But I... But I, David's former defeated condition, is now contrasted with a new, confident attitude of trust in the Lord. It's really a surprising res- response in the heart of a depressed man. By God's grace, David now begins to live again and begins to walk again by faith. He says, I have trusted in your loving kindness. And what we find here, in, find here is this past perfect, I have trusted trusted and that's how our english reads but i think the emphasis is more on the present reality i am trusting in your loving kindness that's what david is declaring here it's the declaration of his heart i am trusting in you i'm trusting in your loving kindness it says you think of that word loving kindness it's the well-known hebrew word perhaps you've heard of it it's it's called hesed it's a notoriously difficult word to translate The King James Version referred to it as mercy. Some English versions refer to it as faithfulness. The English Standard Version refers to it as steadfast love. And it's really a combination of all those things. If I would describe it, it's a a description of God's graciousness and his kindness towards his pitiful creatures or towards those who are in a pitiful state, those who are in great need. And David says, I'm trusting in your hesed, I'm trusting in your character, I'm trusting in who, you're, who you are and your, your disposition to fallen creatures like me. Therefore, David resolves in the next part of the verse. He says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And David's heart, the seed of all of his thinking and his emotions, here he's directing them. He says, I will rejoice. It's as if David is here taking his own emotions and his own thought life and telling them what to do. This is what you will do. And I think this is so critical as David tells himself that he will rejoice. He resolves to rejoice. You see, some Christians n- never seem to realize that they're not captive to their own emotions. It seems like sometimes in life we just think that I must be angry in this situation and I'm permanently just sentenced to anger for the next week because of this scenario in life. That's not true. We can direct our thoughts and our emotions, and David does so here. The scriptures assume over and over again that we can direct our emotional state. We're not helpless prisoners locked up in our own emotional despair. The scriptures command us, command us to rejoice, to be glad, to experience joy. They also say things like, set your mind on things above and not the things on the earth. Philippians 4.8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure and lovely, and whatever is of of good repute, if there's anything of excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think about these things. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Those are commands. This is what we find in Scripture over and over again. Look at it with me in another psalm. Turn to Psalm 42, classic example of this sort of self-directing speech, thinking and talking to yourself, directing your emotions. Here David is saying, look what David says in Psalm 42, verse 5, similar psalm. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Well, why are you so troubled? Why have you become disturbed within me? And here, look what he tells his own heart to do. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Here, here David is lecturing his own heart. Hope in God. By God's empowering grace, we can direct our thoughts on what is true. We can, we can take every thought captive. To, to see this in another psalm, turn to Psalm 62. Just psalm 62. Look what David Praise here beginning in verse 5 he begins speaking to himself my soul wait in silence for God only for for my hope is from him he only is my rock and my salvation my stronghold I shall not be shaken on God my salvation and my glory rest the rock of my strength my refuge is in God and then catch this verse trust in him at all times O people pour out your heart before him God is a refuge for us it's as if David's dealing with his own heart and then he begins to make some exhortation he picks his head up and says look people trust in him at all times pour out your heart before him I think that's what's happening in that second section of Psalm 13 it's just David pouring out his heart before the Lord taking his trials to the Lord because God is a refuge for us and in Psalm 13, back in our psalm, in verse 5, David is committed to rejoicing in the future. Because of this truth, he says, I resolve, I will rejoice in God's salvation. In the Old Testament, this word salvation is not just limited to a spiritual sense or the spiritual realm. It's David is, is confident that God will deliver him. God will provide the relief that he's so desiring And his resolution continues over into verse 6. I will sing to the Lord. It's as if David is sort of pounding his fist on the table and he's in adamant defiance of his feelings saying, I will rejoice. I will sing to him. I will open my mouth in praise to God. We say, well, why? How can David be so resolved in the midst of this suffering? I mean, how how did he turn this corner? Well, how how can he have this resolution in his heart? Well, David answers, because he has dealt bountifully with me. David rests his future confidence on God's past faithfulness. God has treated treated me in the past with great abundance, with great blessing in the past. Why should I expect any difference in the future now? If this is who God has been in the past, why would I not expect that moving forward? And I think it's worth noting here that in this psalm, there's no change in God. We have no indication that God miraculously intervened here for David. God did not give David a special message from heaven to sort of buttress his faith and confidence, but the the change is all on David's end. It's all in his own perspective. David here works from complaining to prayer and petition to rejoicing. And his perspective and outlook on life has been transformed in the process. And he say, well, transformed by what? Well, of course the Lord, but also by faith, by trusting, by walking by faith. I don't believe David here is saying, I will rejoice if you deliver me, implying that he's ready to rejoice when God will uphold his end of the bargain. If you deliver me, then I will rejoice. No, that's not what he's saying. Rather, he's saying, I will rejoice now in light of your future salvation. I will rejoice because you will deliver Through one means or another, you will deliver, either if it's through this life, perhaps in the next life, perhaps it'll be taking me into glory, but one way or another, I will rejoice because you will deliver. You will care for me. You are kind. You are gracious to me. That's the way you've always been, and I'm going to trust in that now. In my darkness, in my despair, I'm trusting in in that now. This is the way you have always been, so why would I not trust in you now? This is what David came to. This is what he worked through. This is David's example for us. And yet we might be saying, well, well, this is David. Of course God dealt bountifully with David. I mean, I mean, David was that shepherd boy who slew a giant. and I mean, God blessed him richly. He became a great king. I mean, God even promised the messianic line to him. Yeah, sure, God dealt bountifully with David. But what has God done for me? Has God dealt bountifully with me? Perhaps you're saying that in your own heart. Perhaps you're going, my life has just been one arduous uphill climb. I mean, do you know the house I grew up in? Do you know the man I married? Do you know the conditions that I have in my life? Do you know the diagnosis I received from the doctor? Do you know how hard my situation is? Is this the abundant blessing? And I think this is where we stall out in this progression In this progression of David, that where we should be following, we sort of get stuck back in step one. And just this constant cycle of repeat, endless self-pity and despair, just, just kind of expressed in these kind of complaining thoughts towards the Lord. And yet the solution is so simple, and at the same time, yet so difficult to put into practice. So difficult to believe in the midst of pain and hardship, in the midst of heartbreak. But the truth is simply this, God has dealt bountifully with us. God has. And I would argue that's true of every human on the planet. Every human on the planet. Do you know what we deserve for our rebellion against God? Do you know what God owes us? God's holiness demands that sinful acts of rebellion be punished. And we have all Sin. We've all sinned over and over again, and we rightly deserve God's wrath. We deserve it immediately. We deserve to be sentenced to hell for all eternity. And yet sinful men and women spurn God's law. They hate his influence in, in this life, and yet they continue to constantly breathe his air, and he constantly upholds them by the power of his will, and moment by moment he sustains them. And despite this fact, they still don't give him thanks or praise him. Despite the fact that they are worthy of immediate judgment, immediate sentencing to the fires of hell, God, in his mercy, does not give people that immediate justice. He lets them live. God sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is what I believe Paul referred to when he said, God is the savior of all men, especially believers, in 1 Timothy 4.10. So every pagan on the planet daily lives as a recipient of God's mercy but how much more is this true of Christians how could we ever dream to say that God has not dealt bountifully with us I mean when we're saying that we have to ask ourselves do we know the gospel do we know what God has done for us that we deserved hell and God sent his son to die in our place God made a way for us. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice that takes away all of our sin, and he's given us a great inheritance in Christ. He's clothed us with the righteousness of his Son so that when God looks looks at us, he sees us as perfect and righteous and holy because of the work of Christ. So yes, God has dealt richly with each one of us. How could we ever say that God has not dealt bountifully with us? And because God has dealt bountifully with us, we can follow David through this progression. Yes, at times are difficult, and when our hearts are broken and our life is spinning out of control, yes, it's appropriate at times to cry out with questions of lament. God, why would you bring this into my life? Why is this so hard? I don't see why you did this this way. I don't think that's sinful to express those thoughts to God. But then we should turn those into prayer. God, please intervene. Please work through this. Please bring about your glorification and my good, my sanctification. But then we should resolve like David. We should resolve to trust and resolve to worship. I will sing to the Lord. It's one of the great things about coming together on the Lord's Day every week, to sing to the Lord, sing praises to him, forcing ourselves to sing to him because it's right and it's appropriate no matter what. We sing. So we do what David does. We say, I am trusting in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with each one of us. And that is true of each one of us. And therefore, we put this process to work. We counsel our own hearts through these steps. We, we work through this. We move from complaints and concern and just a critical spirit in our own heart to, to prayers of thanksgiving and thanking the lord to praising the lord to rejoicing to committing to sing to him and to rejoice i believe this is how the lord would have us navigate our trials so let's pray and ask for his help to put this into practice heavenly father lord we thank you for david's example here lord we we can talk about these things and talk about them but it's another thing to walk through them Uh, when trials and trials and adversity strike and as we process through those things and work through difficulties lord these things are hard to believe in the moment uh, lord we at times we're so tempted just to focus in our own life to wallow in self-pity uh, but lord keep us from that may we see how david works here and see other scriptures that talk about these very same things and would we put them to use well, lord i pray you'd make us a church family that's gracious in the way we comfort those who are uh, suffering knowing that there's no timeline on this progression that some people it takes time to go from step to step and so help help us to care and love and to come around and be patient and weep with those who weep but yet encourage each other along the process help us to be gracious in that help us to think rightly about our trials and lord i pray you'd prepare us Uh, those of us who are not going through great seasons of difficulty right now at the moment, that you would prepare us now to walk through those seasons, that you would strengthen us now, help us to understand these truths now so that when the trials come, we may glorify you by rightly handling those trials, rightly thinking through those trials and worshiping you through them. And Lord, we pray for those who are in the midst of the battle right now, who are going through difficult seasons, trials, some great, some maybe small, whatever it may be. We just pray you'd strengthen them. We pray that they would think rightly about their own trials. Would they see your sovereign hand through it? Would they be encouraged? And would they cry out to you in prayer? Would they pour out their hearts before you? And would they also resolve to worship? Would they choose to trust in you and sing to you with joy? We pray that you'd help them in that. Lord, we thank you for this text. Thank you for David and his open words and his own struggles that we can learn from. We pray that you just help us to implement these things into our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.